Stay with Jesus is the series that we are in in the book of Hebrews. It's the primary message of that unknown author uh, as he uh, wrote this. Uh, well, some scholars believe it's really a sermon uh, to a people who uh, were, were under persecution. These were Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah uh, as the gospel was being declared all around uh, that known world at the time. The gospel went to synagogues. Jewish people became believers. And, uh, and then persecution came. Uh, people lost their jobs. People lost homes and property, shunned by family. And uh, there were some that were uh, beginning to drift, beginning to step away from Christ because being identified with Christ brought trouble and brought pain. And uh, so they were, some had already left, some were thinking about leaving. And uh, this, this unknown author writes this letter, writes this sermon, and says, Stay with Jesus. And that's the series we are in. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, because that's the section we're going to be in uh, this morning. Brian Candelo talked last week about Hebrews chapter 2, which contained the first warning in the book. This warning of drifting. And if you remember last week, uh, uh, Brian talked about having home base and, uh, and keeping your eye on home base, but how there's these currents that would cause us to drift and cause us to be distracted and lose sight of home base. And uh, you, you remember the story of how he just left his wife out at sea and, uh, and ignored her pleas for help. No, it was something like that. But it was this, this, this idea of how he was out there in the ocean and, and, uh, and the current caught him. And boy, that is, that is really, the, that's how it is with us. We can become distracted. And I thought Brian did a great job of helping us understand that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus so we don't drift. And Hebrews chapter 3 gets the second warning, which is if drift, drifting really is an unconscious thing that happens, we get caught in currents and we find ourselves like, wow, how do we get over here? How do we get so far? The second warning uh, is, is not unconscious. Drifting is an unconscious, is something that happens to us unconsciously. The second warning of turning away because of unbelief is a deliberate choice that we make. And we're going to be looking at, that, uh, looking at that today. So if you've got your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to read a section of it. And if you'd stand as I do that, um, that would be great. Uh, Hebrews 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 6 because that's not where I'm going to concentrate uh, our, our time together in the Word. But just to give you a little uh, idea what that part is about. Remember, this writer is writing to Jewish believers who are going back to the Jewish faith. So he's talking about all the heavy hitters of Judaism and saying how Jesus is greater than, uh, than, than these big names of the Jewish faith. So in verses one through six, he's, he's tackling Moses. And what he's saying is that Moses was the source of revelation in the Old Testament. Jesus is now the source of revelation in the, in the New Testament, and he is greater than Moses. Moses was simply a servant. Jesus is the son of the house. There's a lot of comparing and contrasting that goes on there in the first six verses. But I want to pick it up in, uh, in verse 7, where um, this writer is now going to cover this case study of a people whose hearts became hard to the point where they didn't enter uh, the, their rest, meaning the promised land. And he's going to tell us, be careful. Don't let your hearts become hardened. Let's pick it up in verse seven. That is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. 
So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. This is God's holy word. You can be seated. Daryl Kyle may not be a household name unless you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Uh, Kyle came, in, in, came up in, uh, in the minor leagues as a pitcher uh, and in 1993, entered, uh, entered Major League Baseball, actually threw his first no-hitter in 1993. Uh, in his time in the Major Leagues, he was a three-time All-Star. He was a team leader on the St. Louis Cardinals. And on June 22, 2002, the Cards were playing their rivals, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, they're in Chicago, and, uh, and Kyle, being a team leader, uh, would typically show up at the park pretty early. But that day, on June 22nd, he wasn't there early with the other team leaders, and that sort of surprised some people, but they thought, you know, he's not pitching tonight, he's pitching tomorrow night. So they just kept uh, getting warmed up and getting ready to go. Batting practice is starting to take place, and um, now, now, now people are getting a little bit nervous, wondering where Daryl Kyle is, and so some of his friends start calling him, uh, and he doesn't answer his phone, which then caused panic to set in, uh, wondering what's happened to Daryl Kyle, and some teammates go back to the hotel they were staying at to Kyle's room to find out what's wrong, uh, why he's not at the, at the ball field. They get to the door, it's locked, they knock on the door, they pound on the door, no one comes to it. They get the key to the room, and when they go to open the door, the chain is still on the door. When they cut through the chain and get into the room, what they discover is a sculpted athlete in the prime of his life, 33 years old, a father of three, is laying on his bed. He has died of a heart attack. This silent and quiet hardening of the arteries was taking place in his own, uh, his own physical body. Autopsy would, would reveal that two of those main arteries were blocked, there were 90% blockage in two of those arteries. And he had no symptoms, he was feeling fine. Yet he died. Hebrews chapter three is, uh, is it's, it's, a, it's about a hardening of the heart. In, in a, just like in, physically in our bodies, we gotta guard our hearts. Spiritually, there is also a hardening of the arteries that can take place. And just like Kyle, Daryl Kyle silently and quietly had no idea that his heart, his arteries were becoming hard, the, the writer of Hebrews chapter three is, is telling us, giving us this case study of a people whose hearts silently and quietly became hard. 
I mean, they left Egypt believing the message that God was taking them to the promised land. But somewhere along the way, the, the, the blockage started to happen. The, the arteries started to get clogged. The heart became hard to the point where they refused to believe that God could actually take them into the promised land and defeat the giants there and give them the land. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that their bodies ended up, they died, a spiritual heart attack, there in the wilderness. How's that happen? I mean, the obvious thing for us to ask is, hey, 60 AD, telling the story of a case study of people who lived you know, a couple thousand years before that, how do, you, how do you go from believing and starting out well to this point where your heart slowly becomes hard? How does that hardening take place to the point where you stop believing God? How do you, let's go from 6080 to 2013. How might that happen for us? In fact, the question to ask you today is, how's your heart? Is there a silent and quiet hardening in your own heart? Because the consequences are significant. Hebrews chapter three, uh, verse 14, says this. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. And then getting a sneak peek into Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter four, verse one, therefore since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. You can fall short of your rest. And this is this, we need to, we need to do a, a heart check and assess our hearts and find out if our hearts are hardening. So here's what we're gonna do today. Uh, we're gonna do an autopsy on these people who died in the wilderness. And we're gonna dive in, we're gonna cut in and see how their hearts became hard and assess our own hearts. But even before we get to do the autopsy, there's another question we need to answer. And it's this one that you may be already asking in your mind quietly, or maybe you're like one of the folks who emailed me this week or had a conversation with Brian Cadell last week and said, hey, can I lose my salvation? Is Hebrews saying that I can fall short of my, is, is this, is it, are you saying that I can, I can lose my salvation? That's what's going on here? I wanna try and tackle that question first. A question, by the way, that's been debated for centuries, but I'm gonna answer it in about seven minutes. <laughs> Here's the deal. We, we, we just, just draw a line here, and what we're gonna do, there's two main thoughts in answering this question, all right? And there, by the way, there's smart people on both sides of this. And you, there's scripture verses you can pull for both sides to this, which, which is why the, the debate is still, the thinking still goes on on this one. But really, what I wanna do is bring, bring it to a point to help you understand that really when you boil it all down, we'll, we'll get the same answer here. But on this side over here, we got the once saved, always saved idea. This theological term, you may have heard it before, it's called eternal security. It's this idea that when I come to the place where I discover my need for Jesus Christ and I receive this free gift of salvation, no one can take it from me. John chapter 10. Satan can't take it from you. Angels can't take it from you. Death can't take it from you. No one can steal that gift from you. There was a thinker uh, during the Reformation time. His name was John Calvin. He came up with a lot of points. One of his points was this very thing. Once saved, always saved, eternal security. God is all powerful. He's giving you this gift. No one can outmuscle God and take that gift from you. That, that's, that's one side of this equation. The other side of the equation is this phrase that, frankly, pops up quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. It's this hold firm to the end. 
And the idea here is that it's great that you have a profession of faith and you have a great start, but what you need is ongoing faith. You need to keep believing. And, uh, and, and a guy named uh, Jacobus Arminius uh, created his own thinking system, system on this. It's called, uh, it's to be Arminian. Arminianism represents this side of the, this answering the question. Calvinism, named after John Calvin, represents, represents the other side. And, uh, and by the way, some places actually use this idea, and some others, as a test for fellowship. And we don't here. Um, you know, we don't require Arminians to sit on this side and Calvinists to sit on this side. Uh, we don't do any of that. In fact, we have people on our staff who fall on, on different sides of this, uh, this particular equation. In fact, Steve Dangaren, one of our pastors on staff and I, were getting into a conversation because I knew that, that he landed on a different uh, opinion than I did and I wanted just to, to bounce some ideas off of him. And so we were in an office, an empty office, having a conversation making our points and apparently we were doing it a little bit loudly because Rob Childs cracked open the door very slowly and said are you guys okay in here <laughs> people get pretty heated up uh, on this one and uh and and by the way there, there are some negative consequences to the, this side of the thinking uh some a shadow side so to speak and it's this hey all I need to do is pray my prayer and invite Christ in my life and I can live however I want there's, there can be, I'm not saying always, but there can be little motivation for holiness. And this side over here, the, the Arminian side, or the hold firm to the end side, also has a shadow side of some negative consequences of this thinking, and it's, it's fear and doubt. I mean, how do I know if, if, I'm, if I'm truly holding on? You know, what if I blow it? Am I, am I still in? There's, there's that, that shadow side uh, to it. Now, uh, Steve Dangaren, just so you know, we, we just being candid, Steve Dangaren lands more on the, the once saved, always saved. And I land more on, on, on this side. He's wrong, I'm right, of course. And uh, I land more on this side. And, and, but even landing over here, um, I believe no one can take your salvation from you. Satan can't. No, nobody can take that from you. But representing this side's idea that due to negligence, drifting, a hardening of the heart, you, you, you can drift away you can turn away some of you know obviously most of us in the room know the name Billy Graham um, many of you may not know the name Charles Templeton Templeton was an evangelist with Billy Graham back in the 1940s and both of them were, were, were evangelizing leading people to Christ people back in the day said that Templeton he was the one that would overturn the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ Yet, some years later, Templeton had a negative experience to the point where he no longer was an evangelist. In fact, he became an atheist. Templeton, eventually, he would write a book just years before his death in 2001. Templeton would write a book called Farewell to God. Here's my question for you. Take Charles Templeton. He started out, was he once, is he, is he gonna be in heaven? Is he gonna be, how does someone who, who represents this side uh, of the equation, how would they answer this question? Uh, what, about, what about a guy named Charles Templeton who says farewell to God, writes a book? And, and, and someone on this side would, would answer that by saying, well, he wasn't really saved in the first place. Which might sound like a cop-out, but actually, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, read it at some point, that's exactly the same logic that the Apostle John uses when he talks about people leaving the early church. That conversion was never authentic, 
And what needed to happen was ongoing faith. So then the question becomes, how do I know if I had an authentic conversion? Well, this side of the equation would answer, well, an authentic conversion is followed up with ongoing faith. Aha, we have the same idea. It doesn't even matter if you're once saved, always saved, or hold firm to the end, because really when you boil it all down, what you're looking for is, yes, it's great to have a wonderful start, to have a profession of faith, but better than a great start is a fantastic finish. And it doesn't matter where you land on this one, because ongoing faith is, it is part of being a disciple. Now, if you have any questions about that, email Brian Cadello at bcandello at samalliance.org. Just sitting right over here. I won't look at him. Look, this, this, is some, this is an idea that can really confuse people because we, and we, it's emotional. Did my son, did my daughter, did they finish? I mean, we, we have these questions. Look, God has the final word on this. We do our best to understand his thinking on it from his word. But when we get to the book of Hebrews, what we find is some very challenging things that that confront us. We can drift unconsciously and we can get to a point where we deliberately say to God, I'm not following you anymore. I'm not gonna stay with Jesus. And that's why we have this book. And that's why the writer uses this case study of the original Hebrews who came out of Egypt. So, let's put the proverbial white coat on, let's start cutting in here and find out how their hearts got hard. And I'm gonna do that by going to Psalm 106. You don't have to go there, I'm gonna throw the verses up here on the screen, and rather quickly, I'm just gonna work through and identify the different ways that their hearts became hard. So that we can see it, but also so that we can ask ourselves the question, how's my heart? Is there a silent and quiet hardening of my arteries that would eventually get me to the place where I would fall short of what God has for me. So, let's do the autopsy, Psalm 106. Here's the first thing that you can discover from looking at Psalm 106. Here's where they began to go wrong. They forgot God's kindness to them in the past. It says in Psalm 106, verse seven, our ancestors in Egypt were not impressed by the Lord's miraculous deeds. They soon forgot his many acts of kindness to them. They became forgetful. They forgot, you know, the Red Sea was yesterday, but we're three days in, where's the water? That's great, all that other stuff happened, but but you know what, what about today? What have you done for me lately, God? They weren't impressed and they forgot God's kindness. Really what it boiled down to is ingratitude. Mark Buchanan, an author, uh, speaks about ingratitude this way. He says, ingratitude is an eye disease every bit as much as a heart disease. It sees only flaws, scars, scarcity. Likewise, the God of the thankless is a wary, stingy, grudging, bumbling, nitpicky. Thankfulness is a secret passageway into a room you can't find any other way. It is the wardrobe into Narnia. I love love that quote. The ingratitude is an eye disease as well as a heart disease. It only sees flaws. But for those who are grateful, it's the, it's the wardrobe into Narnia. Oh, God, I remember. I remember when you did that. God, I, thank you, God, for how you met that need. That gratitude keeps our hearts off. It keeps our hearts off. The people uh, uh, that are coming out of Egypt, 
They forgot God's kindnesses. They were not impressed with the the miracles of yesterday. They wanted God now. Next thing they did is they gave in to their cravings. Psalm 106, verse 14, in the wilderness their desires ran wild, testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. It began with food. Oh, if I could only have a bonsai burger at Red Robin, a little pink in the center, some fries, a side of barbecue sauce. Oh, remember the days we we could go down and we could go to Olive Garden and had an all-you-can-eat salad and soup thing, and all we got is this blasted manna. I mean, what is this stuff? I mean, we've boiled it, we've grilled it, we've stir-fried it, and we're getting sick of it. We want, we want other stuff. We want variety. I want to be able to pick and choose. And they craved. And eventually God let them have what they were craving. Along with it came some plagues. They gave into their cravings. They rebelled against their leaders. Psalm 106, verse 16. The people were jealous of Moses and envious of Aaron, the Lord's holy priest. Here's an important question to ask. How do I treat those who lead me? How do I talk about my teachers? Someone who's over me in the workplace. The leaders in my life. See, the people in Israel are like, you know what? Moses, we we could do a better job than Moses. And why does Aaron get all 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 the good jobs? They had an attitude toward, how's your how's your attitude towards your leaders? Your mayor. Governor, your president. That hardened their heart. Next thing, as you do this autopsy, they replaced God. Psalm 106, verse 20. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. How do you go from this God who splits the Red Sea to choosing a statue of a grass-eating bull? How do you get there? Well, I could control the grass-eating bull. God's kind of scary. Let's just keep him over there. But I want to go with what's familiar. I want to, I, who's your God? Is it really Jesus? Is he really, is he really Lord? Or have you replaced him with money, prestige, status? Maybe even with good things, kids, family. They replaced God. Here's the next, you start cutting and here we get to the next one. They determined that God wasn't believable. This happens at Kadesh Barnea when they're right at the borderline there and the spies are in the promised land. We've got 12 spies in there. They're going around checking out the land. They come out, 10 of them come out saying, you know, with this negative report, oh man, we'll never be able to do this. There, there's giants in the land. Yeah, the land is good, but we'll, we'll never be able to make it. Sort of the spirit of Eeyore, we'll never make it. It's just, it's just we're like grasshoppers uh, compared to them. And uh, you've got J- Joshua and Caleb saying, but yeah, with God, we can't. But they determined these same people who came out of Egypt believing God, seeing Red Sea, seeing all kinds of miracles, got to the borderline borderline of the promised land. They were right there. They were so close. And they said, you know, when I first started out with God, I used to believe that. But now I've gotten smarter and, you know, I just I gotta be realistic. Because, you know, I'm... You know, 5'11", and they're seven foot one, and they got swords, and I got sticks, and <laughs> the fortified cities, we got tents. It just isn't realistic to think that God can actually do this. They thought 
they actually came to the point where God wasn't believable anymore. Two more. They grumbled. We talked about this before. Psalm 106, verse 25 says, they grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. Interesting to note where they grumbled. In their tents. You know, they came home after being in the wilderness, got in their tent. Man is being served. They got their steak knife. They're cutting it. Man, I tell you, if I was in charge, this is what I would do. I'd fix this whole thing. I can't believe we got these, these guys that are leading this. This is, this, we're just going in circles. This is a wreck. And they grumbled and they murmured. And the arteries were clogging. And then finally, they adopted the customs of culture. They mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. This is a reference to the Moabite women who come down. Remember Balaam, he's trying to curse them, but God won't let Balaam curse, which tells you a little bit about the power of words. He won't let Balaam curse. When he opens his mouth, all he can do is bless. But then they send down these Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel, and the men fall, and they give in. They mingle with the nations. They take on their customs, take on the culture. In fact, that's the mistake they would make in the future as well once they got into the land. Have we done that? Greed, materialism, sexual sin. See, this was one of the things that hardened their heart. Which is, by the way, why God spends so much time on saying, what are the customs in the culture of the kingdom of God? Love your enemy. Keep on forgiving. And if you want to, what's the customs of the kingdom of heaven? You just read the gospels and study the kingdom of God. And you'll, you'll understand, that's how we do it here. Now, here's the autopsy. They forgot God's kindness to them in the past. They gave into their cravings. They rebelled against their leaders. They replaced God. They determined that God wasn't believable. They grumbled, and they adopted the customs of culture. And just leave that up there for a second here. Now, at the end of Hebrews chapter three, we got all these questions that are being asked by the author. Um, He says, who was it who rebelled against God even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? Why is he asking that question? He's asking that question so that you don't think, that'll never happen to me. Who was it that God led out of Egypt? Who had a good start? It was the people of God. Who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Was he talking to some foreign nation? Was he talking to some, some people that he, that he didn't even know? No, he was talking to his people. So we see that because of their unbelief, the heart became hard, the arteries became clogged, and they were not able to enter his rest. I want to close with three questions. First question is simply this. Do any of the autopsy results Describe me. We go from 60 AD to 2013. Here's the list behind me. It's a silent, quiet killer. Do any of those describe you? If so, we need to repent, ask God for forgiveness, and allow our heart to get soft. Here's a second question I have for us. 
Who in my life have I given the permission to help assess the condition of my heart? Let me read to you um, verse 13 from Hebrews chapter three. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. You must warn each other. The, the, the little Greek word there is paraclete, same word used for Holy Spirit. Verse seven says, so the Holy Spirit says, same word. Who's gonna paraclete you? See, this is why you can't do the Christian life alone. You need community. You need people that you've given permission to to say, hey, you know what? You're, you're kind of grumbling behind closed doors. You, you, you know, as I've done life with you, I've, I've noticed that your, your heart's getting a little bit, a little bit hard. You're, you're not very grateful. Who have you given permission to? You, you need someone because this is a silent, quiet killer. You need people who love you, who may not necessarily be impressed by you, but they love you to speak the truth in love. Who have you given that permission to? And last question is simply this, something to think about. Is it possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple? Is it really possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple? Think about that one. Hey, great beginning, Hebrews. You left Egypt. Fantastic. You saw the Red Sea split for you. You're in the wilderness. And then they stopped believing. Have you had a great start? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to have that start with Christ. You need a great start. But we also need a great finish. And by the way, Hebrews chapter three is an autopsy of people who, through unbelief, allowed their hearts to become hard. Hebrews chapter 11, you could do an autopsy there and find people whose hearts became soft and stayed soft. Not because, obviously, of unbelief, but the flip side, faith. Faith kept their hearts soft and they finished well even though they didn't see what they put their hope in. May that be true of us.